Africa Climate Podcast. Hello. I hope that you're doing well. Thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Africa Climate Podcast, a podcast dedicated to bridging the climate reporting gaps in Africa. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwa. Now, the 27th United Nations Climate Summit, COP27, is eight weeks away. COP27 takes place when several climate-related emergency crises are devastating communities, economies, and ecosystems all over the world. Today, we welcome the COP27 President Special Representative, Abbasanda Wael Abulmagd. Abbasanda, thank you so much for joining us today. Would you please introduce yourself to our audience? My name is Wael Abul Magd. I'm the special representative of COP27 President, uh, Minister Samah Shokri. I have been involved in the process since right after Paris, all through to Glasgow and now building to Sham Sheikh. I'm a career diplomat from the Egyptian Foreign Service, and it's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much, Well, for actually joining us today. I sincerely do appreciate you for taking time. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about, but I think one of the key issues that are coming up as we head towards COP27 in November is that COP27 is taking place, you know, when an emergency, we are already seeing an energy crisis, especially in Europe with the Russia-Ukraine crisis. We are seeing droughts in the Horn of Africa. We are seeing also in parts of, of, of Europe and floods in Pakistan, devastating storm in South Africa, and not to forget that nations are still trying to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm wondering if you can just, uh, like, just, you know, how is this climate summit critical, especially for the African continent? Right. It's, it's Every COP is going to be very important because time is of the essence and we can't mm-hmm. afford to delay. We're already way behind the targets and the objectives that we're trying to reach. So, Every COP is an urgent emergency COP. This one, as you rightly described, is taking place in the backdrop of multiple other challenges that have a bearing on the ability of 180 uh, something member states and parties to reach consensus. You rightly said, and they have direct impacts. They're not just related remotely. You have the post-pandemic economic situation with uneven recovery from one part of the world to the other, and this has very, very severe implications. Clearly, the geopolitical situation, the war in the Ukraine, has directly affected um, the food and energy prices, but has uh, an effect that goes beyond those two areas to employment, to the economic stability in many other countries, to countries who relied on imports or exports to that region, so on and so forth. So it is a very difficult uh, time. Uh, And lastly, uh, there's friction between the United States and China, who are two of the most, uh, the highest emissions, uh, but also important players on the global scene. So it's a it's a convergence of a number of challenges, but the world cannot afford to delay. It is everyone agrees that every action that needs to be done and it gets delayed costs more and is harder to achieve next year or the year after. So the globally, we understand there is an interest not to delay effort. Um, We've communicated this message as COP presidency publicly and in private with uh, many important uh, interlocutors. 
from the developing and developed world to indicate that we need to rise to the occasion. We need to rise above the differences and prioritize climate action because this is not about one country or one region. It's about humanity and the future existence of our species on the planet and the sustainability of this planet to provide us with livelihoods. Fantastic. And you put it right there. We cannot afford to wait. Delay or or backtrack. I'm sorry, I should add, we've seen some backtracking. So, mm. uh, I mean, we, we, we cannot afford at the moment when you're supposed to be going double speed or triple speed to slow down just makes the destination that much further. So we, we're stressing that point. We cannot be backtracking. Absolutely. And, and that's very interesting. You mentioned that given that you know, the energy crisis, you find that this Russia-Ukraine war is actually seeing countries like Japan call for a push to revive the country's nuclear power industry. You know, Germany, you know, the energy crisis has also rekindled a debate on shutting down the country's last three nuclear um, power plants by the end of 2022. We've also seen Belgium, you know, has delayed by decades its plan to scrap off nuclear energy by 2025. How do you, developing nations who have the historic responsibilities of a vision. How do you push them under this crisis? How do you push for commitment? Because it's been back and forth, calling for actions and calling for actions. How does COP27 ensure that this COP does not end up being another call for action, but an implementation COP? Exactly. Um, you, you hit the nail on the head. We, we've repeatedly, essentially from day one, indicated that we have no choice, all of us collectively, but to launch effective, rapid implementation. That's that's the main headline, implementation. We've spent many years negotiating, and now is the time to actually implement actions on the ground. Um, but to your point regarding uh, the what could be seen as backtracking from many countries, uh, there's a practical side on the ground, and there's a political messaging there. On the practical side, um, We've been told by many countries that our overall targets for 2030 or beyond, we will meet them. Please bear with us. This is essentially what we're hearing. Bear with us. This is an emergency situation. We hope it will be short-lived and we'll get back on track and double the efforts to compensate. That's one response we're receiving. But there's also a a more conceptual message there. I think it should be an eye-opener for many of the countries who have been hit by this episode of increased prices, and they had to react based on their national interests and priorities so as not to freeze this winter, for example. It was, I think, the minister from the DRC who mentioned this in one of the uh, ministerial meetings that we had when this issue was being discussed, the backtracking. She said, well, this is your temporary emergency. You need to understand that many developing countries live in a constant state of economic emergency, combating Mm. severe extreme poverty. So I think the message has to be out there that what you're demanding of us under our constant difficult economic situation is something that now is brought to bear and feeling for you on even if albeit on a temporary basis. Yeah, they saw it. They had to rush and do exceptional measures. Well, we live constantly under exceptional economic measures. Mm -hmm. So there is that conceptual side. But back to the main point, they've been telling us, many have been saying it's short-lived. We hope that is the case because investments in fossil fuels take time 
and you can't just shut them down overnight. So we hope they will be able to continue on the pathway that they've committed to, especially from the EU, to reduce emissions by certain rates by certain dates in the future. Hmm. Interesting, because then now that also brings a whole issue of trust, which has been over the years we've seen under this climate process. And I'll say that I've been asking myself a question whereby, as you say rightfully there, that Africa and developing nations, have, this is the issues they've lived with when we talk about rising of temperatures by one, one degree Celsius, that means for different parts of Africa, it is totally different. It could be three degrees, 2.5 degrees and all that, which is already beyond the Paris Agreement threshold. The question is, um, especially on the issue of adaptation, which Africa has been pushing over and over and over again. Now we're seeing countries like France already, they're going through an issue of drought. Do we see a situation where perhaps when, when now these issues are brought across the table, these are agendas that probably commonly will be felt like it's just, just the adaptation will have a different emergency or a different interpretation this time around that developing countries are also feeling the heat? That would be, well, a step forward, but would be sad that you needed to suffer in order to mm. acknowledge the suffering of others. It's expected of humanity to sympathize and empathize with the suffering of others without having been burnt myself. So anyway, I'll leave it at that. But the point is, yes, we, we, we have spoken out loud as an Egyptian presidency. We've indicated repeatedly that uh, issues of adaptation must be given the due attention that they deserve. Um, we are fully on board with the need collectively uh, around the world to exert every effort to reduce emissions. And we've updated our NDC, NDCs. Many others are in the process and we're pushing everyone to do their utmost given their national circumstances, obviously. So there's no zero-sum equation when it comes to mitigation and adaptation. What we are saying all of the time is that please pay due attention to adaptation because if mitigation is to mitigate the future impacts and effects, adaptation is the here and now. It is the devastation of communities and of livelihoods around the world, including, of course, in Africa. So progress must be made. When we say progress, and this is why implementation phases are quite different from negotiation phases. If I were saying this in Marrakesh after Paris or even in Katowice or in uh, whatever COPs in the past six years, Progress would mean in the negotiations. Right now, it has to be on the negotiating front, but on action on the ground. So yeah. I'll explain this. In the negotiation track, unfortunately, we have some impediments to breakthroughs on adaptation because we have a two-year mandate that's been given to the Egyptian presidency. It means that we started and it's completed in COP28. So yeah. what we hope that's on the global goal on adaptation, which is a very important uh, part of the Paris Agreement and of our work in the negotiations. So what we are committed to do is to ensure the maximum possible progress on the pathway to completing it over two years. So it's like a relay race. You try to do the maximum before you hand the baton to the next racer. Uh, so essentially, we can't uh, slack and, and sit down and then hand to the next presidency in a very bad position. So that's a comparison here. Uh, hmm. So that's the situation with the global goal on adaptation. Another outcome that came from Glasgow was the doubling of adaptation. Again, we must acknowledge it is a good step forward. And we give credit where it's due, in this case to the UK, for really working hard to get this out there. But as President Alok Sharma has said repeatedly, 
many of these things will just be words on a page if they are not followed up upon and mm-hmm. ensured implementation. So that's where we are as an Egyptian presidency. We're talking to the countries who have made this commitment, so to speak, and we want to see how they intend to report and to show the progress being made. Because if it is over a period of years up till 2025, the doubling, then are we to wait until the end of 2024 and see where progress is? Or should it, for the interest of everyone, um, be done sort of on an annual, every six months, something to show us an update that we're at least on track? And this takes me to the point, a very important word you mentioned, which is trust. There is a deficit of trust, and Mm -hmm. it's easy to point fingers and say you're all hating at each other and no country is showing accommodation, but trust is a function of the realities and the past experiences. If I have not seen trustworthy behavior or actions from you in the past, it's hard to ask me to trust you and vice versa. So I think the issue of climate finance, which I just spoke to about the adaptation and uh, doubling and, and across the board, is an issue of the substance of the money being made available, but it also has that impact of nurturing trust. Because if I see that the money is not there, but a grand effort is being made to do it and increase it, I will be patient and understanding that you're doing your best. But if there's not enough transparency and communication on this, the trust gets eroded. And that hurts the process because we get into a catch-22 where I say, I'm not going to do anything until you provide the financing. And then you say, I'm not going to provide financing until I see you're doing something. But when there's an environment of trust, that helps the process. And as presidency, we have an interest in everybody listening to each other better and making progress based on this trust that you mentioned. Fantastic. I think um, perhaps now we can take some time for you to expound the COP27 presidency's initiatives. Sure. The initiatives are still being articulated and formulated because we started with a a larger list and uh, we liked to call them ideas because Mm. some of them would evolve into a standalone initiative. Others might become a pledge. Others yet might become just a declaration or a plan. So we're in the process of finalizing them. I can mention a few of them and they'll be published Mm -hmm. in full detail very shortly. Um, You have one on uh, food and agriculture security. That's a very important one. And there's been a process in developing them, uh, that one. Uh, You have a Just Energy Transition Initiative. Mm -hmm. You have uh, Waste in Africa, very, very uh, well-articulated initiative. You have an initiative that has worked well in Egypt to integrate multiple issues related to adaptation and energy and others, which is in Arabic called Haya Karima, which means decent life. And we are Mm -hmm. sort of uh, scaling this to be an African initiative because it has worked well in Egypt. And uh, we just had some of these uh, presented last night. Uh, We have a uh, international cooperation forum with ministers of uh, finance and international cooperation and environment from Africa here in Egypt for the past three days, and they were presented to the participants yesterday. Those are some of the main initiatives, and they'll be made public uh, very shortly. And and that is part of what we call our action agenda, okay. because as I said, there's a kind of a separation. You have the negotiations; those have a mm-hmm. life of their own, and they are the property of. UNFCCC and the member states based on consensus. So that is the official governmental track. 
But as we said, now is the time to implement. So we have to have these initiatives. Our uh, sort of threshold for an initiative is that we want it to be truly impactful and to be sustainable. We don't want a photo op where something is announced and then six months later, you ask us what happened to it and it's not there. Of course, we're with that in mind, we're building on existing initiatives. We're talking with the United Kingdom on a number of issues that came up in Glasgow that they might want us to build upon because we really don't see this as a selfish endeavor. It's a process. You take responsibility for the process for a year, basically, and then you hand it to the next person and everyone has to build, not say, okay, I'm starting afresh. I'm the best cop presidency ever and I will do miracles. No, we we understand it's a process and that's why we're building on the past. We're even starting maybe some conversations with our friends in the United Arab Emirates to ensure that some of our ideas, no idea actually can be completed and deliver in one year. So you need mm. that continuity. So there are some issues with the UK, others with the UAE, okay. some that I just mentioned right now and older ones. Let me just mention this because it's a very important initiative that coincidentally, President Sisi of Egypt launched and delivered in Paris in 2015, which mm-hmm. was the Africa Adaptation Initiative. Yeah. And uh, we've worked with other uh, countries in the continent, with particularly with Gabon most recently, uh, who were caretakers and champions of that initiative. President uh, Ali Bongo was doing a tremendous job in just maintaining it and giving it support. And he, they did a wonderful job, our friends and brothers and sisters in the Gabon. And now we're in the process of establishing a more uh, permanent setup for it here in Egypt, whereby we will build on the hard work that's been put in place. And that's a very comprehensive adaptation initiative for the continent. Absolutely. And when we talk about implementation, of course, the issue of finance. And when I was following up, I saw the Egypt foreign minister and COP27 presidency uh, designate Sami Shukri reiterated the importance, the important role that philanthropic actors can actually play when it comes to this, you know, implementation of climate change initiatives. Talk us through, like in terms, because the whole financing has been an issue, talk us through what role can philanthropic institutions play in making sure that this plan, this action agenda that COP27 princes has, what role do they have to play? Okay, great. I'll get to that point, but I have to start with the overall uh, climate finance landscape, because mm. philanthropies have a unique characteristic that differs from governments, public money, or from private investments, that Mm. they don't seek anything. They're noble people who want to make the world a better place. So I'll I'll get to that in a minute. Incidentally, I spent four hours last night with philanthropies here in Cairo, the biggest philanthropies, all of them were in the room or on the screen, discussing Mm. that very point that you just asked. But I'll get to it. But it's necessary to understand the global financial landscape. In climate. Needless to say, as an African, all of us, we understand that the needs, not just Mm -hmm. for Africa, but for all developing countries, are in the trillions. Sure. The money available is never going to meet those actual needs. So we've been told uh, time and again this notion of billions to trillions to uh, utilize the billions of public money available from Mm -hmm. developed countries to mobilize and expand the ground to attract private money, which is in the trillions. But where are we now? You have an overwhelming bias in public and private money to regions, 
the north, that's where all the money is spent and invested, mm -hmm. to mitigation with very little money going to adaptation. And that is yeah. normal, and I can explain why very simply. Private money seeks profit, sure. right? Mm. That's legitimate. If you're going to attract someone to come invest in, in your project or something, they need to be guaranteed some kind of profit. So mitigation action, whether especially in the energy realm or in other areas of uh, emissions reductions, there is a tested and tried business model to make a profit. For example, in solar energy, if you invest, you will make a profit. But adaptation is very different in its nature. So to invest and make a profit in adaptation is very difficult. That's yeah. why of total private investments, less than 1% is in adaptation. Okay, so 95, 98, depending on the country, is going to mitigation with a paltry amount going to adaptation. But it gets even worse and worse. What are the instruments used in climate finance globally? 61% of the total climate finance, public or private, is normal debt. Mm. loans. 6% only is grant. And I think there's about 17, I don't want to get the figure wrong, but not a very large number, is concessional loans. Sometimes it's okay to get a loan if it's very low interest, less than commercial rate, but 6% only is grant. So the most vulnerable, the least contributor, the least resilient parts of the world are incurring debt to pay for the climate action. So mm. this is your global landscape. So now I'll go to your question about philanthropies. That was the conversation we had last night. We had maybe 20 of them in the room uh, and many others. I couldn't count, of course, on the screen. And the conversation was about this. And I um, very respectfully came to them. I respect philanthropic work. I think it is amazing that big businesses feel a social responsibility to contribute to various causes. But the facts, the figures, everything should be based on fact, not on created narratives or perceptions. Let's look at numbers. The numbers of philanthropy, the, mon the money, where does it go? What region and what theme or sector? It is overwhelmingly in the global north, in the US and Canada mm. and Europe. So when they show a total figure, you would say, wow, thank you. But you need to ask, where did that money go? It went to the US. Yes. It went to Canada. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think the total of Asia, Africa, and Latin America is 8% of that money. So here's the geography is outrageous. Yeah. And then where are the fields overwhelmingly mm. in energy? And they are, I'm not pointing a finger, they are noble people who want to help humanity. So I told them, look at the graph for private investment and look at the graph for philanthropy. They correspond. And that is a disaster because they should cross. They should be the exact opposite. You should be the ones willing to do things that public and private shy away from. You don't worry that much about risk as business does, right? You can use your seed money to invest in upfront technology expenditures that would make investment attractive. There are many ways to multiply you know, your, the value of your dollars to go further. To their credit, no one took offense. No one 
refuted, everyone said, thank you, and let's work together and see how we can better utilize our limited resources at the end of the day. So it was a very healthy exchange. I enjoyed it tremendously. And I think it was very constructive in pointing them because they wanted to hear this. They asked us to be with them to share our perspective. And the good thing was that there were some philanthropies who are from the region who are knowledgeable Mm -hmm. of our priorities Um, and that type of communication. And they asked me, what should we do? I said, listen to each other, listen to philanthropies from outside your regions, because there is a phenomenon. I learned this recently of flocking. You Mm. are a billionaire and you see a rich billionaire investing in water management or plastics. It's easy and convenient and comfortable to do what she's doing or what he's doing. Yeah. 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 So we told them, put in the effort and study the landscape and fill a need. Avoid overlap. It's a shame if some regions or some themes and sectors have a lot of money, so they attract all the extra money. You're starving another region and you're starving another area, in this case, adaptation. Hmm. And also like different countries, Africa has a lot of countries, 54 countries, you know, the same way that Egypt will attract money, Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa is not the same way that Cameroon, Mali, um, the Gambia will actually attract money, you know, and also where when it comes to private investors will go where there is less perceived risk or where everybody is going, where there is infrastructure. How do you make sure? And I think now this goes, it's a conversation in terms of like, you know, raising money and making sure that countries can be able to move forward in terms of especially adaptation on the ground. How do we make sure like countries can be able to move forward universally accessing this money yeah, well, without that, raising more de- debts yeah. actually? That that point that you just made was exactly the point I was making to philanthropies, that I said, you have to go where no other money is going. So hmm. I said, look at the landscape, both in geography, if, it, if, if the infrastructure for the technology needed to, you know, move on renewables is there in Egypt, don't come to Egypt. It would be ridiculous to come to Egypt if it's there. If wastewater management and recycling and reuse of water is doing well in South Africa, don't go to South Africa. It's nothing against Egypt or South Africa. It's where Mm. other money went already to maybe uh, Nigeria, but didn't go to uh, Gambia or to Chad. So you guys don't have to worry about risk. You're more nimble. Mm. You can take faster decisions and you can utilize your money without expectation of revenue. So some things won't bring in revenue. And that was, you know, technologies, like, let's say solar to simplify it for, to some of the listeners. It's an investment, you're, but your investment is upfront, high, and then maintenance and all that is low cost. This is the area where many countries will suffer. So if you can come in and help Reduce the risk because for the Gambia, for example, to get a loan mm. to from the banks, the rate might be 8%, 9%. So the project just becomes not feasible. But if the seed money is mixed with some money from the philanthropies, the interest might be 4%, the, the combined interest. Mm. Is this clear or it's simple? You yeah, know, you have yeah, nine, yeah, half yeah, of your money, yeah. high interest, your half money is a grant. It makes it mm. more reasonable. So we can cross that hurdle and allow 
other countries who otherwise wouldn't. So you need to best utilize, go where there is a need, go where the countries are starved from resources and make a difference because you're a catalyst. I put this all under the word catalyst, that they can mm. help in these areas. Interesting. And, and now moving back actually to the 100, you know, the, the, the sounds of 100 billion, you know, annual mm-hmm. climate finance mobilization commitment that has yeah. been made mm-hmm. and over the years, over the years, you know, I, I'm just wondering now we are having a whole, um, we are at an age where we are already seeing developed countries already being inflicted by disasters. We're already seeing the pandemic, uh, the Ukraine-Russia war that probably is actually seeing critical resources being perhaps that could have gone to climate adaptation and mitigation being diverted for this crisis. I'm wondering how how do you rebuild trust that has been eroded over the years, especially over finances, you know, and, and the promise that the rich nations will deliver their promise of financial promises moving forward. Yeah. Um, thanks for asking that. I mean, honestly speaking, looking at figures and, and, and facts on the ground, mm. needs and availability and cost mm. and potential, I don't care much for the hundred billion for their actual value to solve the world's uh, climate True. problems as much as for the trust aspect that when we mm-hmm. make a deal and we fulfill or any country fulfills its side of the package or the deal that the other side will also be delivering it because the reality is and any anyone should acknowledge the fact that we've fallen short from delivering it since the commitment was made and True. it has True. never been delivered year after mm-hmm. year after year, year. After year. we sure. fall short but what people don't really talk about is Okay, let's imagine the world, if we had the 100 billion, would we be much better off? The 100 billion is an arbitrary figure that Mm, was pulled out mm, of thin air and has mm, no mm. connection or relation to the actual realities (laughs) on the ground. It's a nice round figure. And we've been chasing it. And and it, it, it really surprised me that smart people continued for so long to chase it as if it was mm. the panacea that was going to solve the world's problems. Let's for yeah. a moment suspend reality and imagine that we have the 100 billion. How much better off will we be when Africa's mm. uh, adaptation needs by 2030 mm. might be in, in the hundreds of mil- billions alone just mm. for Africa? And adaptation isn't getting a fraction, a, a, a fair share of that amount. So, so it is detached from the reality and the needs. I'm not belittling the efforts. It, they are appreciated by the countries who have made these commitments out of their budgets. But this $100 billion is part of the grand deal that we, mm-hmm. the victims uh, the, suffering most from climate change, who did not cause climate change in the past, who continue... Africa as a continent's contribution is negligible today, not even historically. But the grand bargain, the grand deal between developed and developing countries way back in the past decades has been, you guys didn't cause this in the global south mostly. So we want you to come on board and be part of movement forward. And we, as hopefully good, responsible global citizens, said yes, we'll come along on the understanding that appropriate funding will be there. So this trust has been broken by yeah. the failure to deliver year after year after year. I don't get caught up in the 100 billion figure because sure. mm. I know the actual needs go way beyond that. Mm. I can think of 100 billion dollars needed for one sector in Egypt, sure. let alone all of Africa and all sectors in all countries in the developing world. So so it's not going to solve the solutions and hence 
the billions to trillions narrative, which has some foundation in reality for the mitigation side. I believe in it. I believe attracting the trillions of dollars in the private sector and shifting our economies to that pathway might be a good thing. But adaptation will continue to suffer and your country and mine will continue to have to cut into its education budget, waste management budget, housing, education, healthcare to address a problem they did not cause. That's the reality. And I wish I'm wrong. I hope to be proven wrong and to Mm -hmm. see the business model, the lucrative, attractive model that will bring trillions of dollars to invest in Kenya or in Egypt or in uh, whatever South American or Asian uh, developing country or a small island state for that matter in adaptation. It's, and it's, that is, it's, it's going to be difficult. Mm, and, and that is, you know, thinking about the whole issue of just issues. The, the, mm-hmm. Historically, this uh, nations, poor nations did not cause this whole rising temperatures. And then mm-hmm. the whole issue of like, it makes one wonder, is this whole UNFCC process, does it solve or does it solve this climate crisis? Is there a need? We are on the 27th meeting. Well, does it solve this crisis? There's a whole issue of justice, um, climate justice, and the whole issues of finance adaptation. Every issue developing nations have been pushing. Does this process really solve anything? Well, it it does. And and I'll get to that in a minute. Um, Climate justice is very important. Trust, as you mentioned before, is very important. Equity is very important. And not Mm. because they are noble qualities. This is a multilateral regime. And when trust is broken, and when there is no justice and equity disappears, buy-in by everyone starts to become questionable. And when buy-in by everyone becomes questionable, they don't exert good faith efforts to the maximum and they try to avoid, and then regimes fall apart. That's why Egypt, way before we became president, we were the chair of the G77 in China. And we've repeatedly on record at the UNFCCC COPs and other meetings said, be careful, don't erode trust and don't negate equity and justice. When you do, countries might find no option but to deprioritize good faith climate action and start looking at loopholes and how to avoid responsibility. We need buy-in by everyone. So that's to address your point on uh, the issue of of trust and its value. But moving to the process, many of us have worked in the multilateral diplomacy realm for many years, including myself, more than Mm -hmm. 30 years. I'm a strong believer in multilateralism, and I apply a simple test. Would I rather not have this conversation? I know it's frustrating, the pace. I know it's frustrating, the apparent inaction. But I always ask myself, would I rather cancel it and not have it tomorrow? Where Mm. would Kenya be? Where would Egypt be? Where would India? Where would each country be without this Mm. process? At least we have a room to have a civil conversation. It is frustrating. I I understand the sentiment, but I always ask myself this question. Would I rather have my country alone in the wilderness, dealing with this tomorrow 
if that is the choice, then let's you know cancel the process. No, I'm a strong believer in multilateralism with all of its defects that I am aware of, but I see no better alternative for collective work within a semblance of rules that are respected for decision-making. And then we chase each other. You didn't do your part. I didn't do pipe. At least we have a room to discuss it and a venue to go to and fight over it. But I'm yeah. always, I'm a big fan of multilateralism. I'll continue to defend it. Mm. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much. I sincerely appreciate you taking time to come on board today and have a conversation on these particular issues. I sincerely appreciate your final word. Well, my final word is about trust and empathy again. As I said, it is a highly adversarial process. And in this process, there are no winners or losers. Hmm. Delegates, negotiators, heads of state, statespeople, no one should come on top. This is, we can only win together this challenge. This is the most truly international challenge. It doesn't know borders, literally. It will not spare anyone. Of course, some are more resilient than others, but ultimately it will catch up. So we have a genuine self-interest in working together with empathy. We need to shift places all the time. I have to sit in your seat and you sit in mine. Once we do that, we'll start to realize that you're not as unreasonable as you appear, but you are under certain pressures. And you need. So we are urging everyone, please don't let the challenging circumstances surrounding this process hold us back from doing our best. Let's not find pretexts or excuses to reduce or delay action. Let's show more compassion and understanding to those suffering most. While we are having this conversation in our comfortable homes, you and I, 30 million fellow Pakistanis are Mm. internally displaced because of climate. We shouldn't be able to sleep at night because innocent people lost their livelihoods and many have lost their lives in a a country. And Mm. what you attested to earlier in droughts in parts of Europe, in increased heat waves, this is not just the inconvenience of having to sit with a fan. These are crops that are devastated. These are livelihoods that are affected. This is in the global north. You can imagine what's happening around the world. We need to be kinder. We need to listen to each other. We need to be willing to make sacrifices and be less selfish and demanding that my lifestyle will not change and everyone else can sort themselves out. Uh, So I hope that this spirit of kindness and compassion will prevail. Once it does come into the room, Differences on the substance will be resolved. So this is really the impassioned urge and call we're making to everyone under this very difficult circumstance that we're going through. Thank you so, so much. I sincerely do appreciate you. Wael, thank you so much for taking time. My pleasure. Take care. I do hope to speak to you again um, as time goes by, two words and after call. I'll do my best to be with you whenever I can. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that was the COP27 President Special Representative Abbasinda Wael Abulmad. Please do keep it here. We will try our best to break down specific critical issues for the continent 
ahead of COP27. But in the meantime, please do subscribe to the Africa Climate Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, and every other channel you access your other podcast from. And you can also listen to the podcast on our website, www.africaclimatenews.com. Also, please do follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I will talk to you soon. Kwaheri for now. My name is Sophie Mbogwa. Africa Climate Podcast.